Book twenty, chapters one to thirteen of Commentaries on the Gallic War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar. Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes. Book twenty, chapter one. The Rebellion of Vercingetorix. Gaul was now tranquillized, and Caesar, in accordance with his determination, started for Italy to hold the assizes. There he was informed of the murder of Clodius, and, learning that the Senate had decreed that all Italians eligible for service should be sworn in, he proceeded to levy troops throughout the whole province. The news of these events speedily made its way into Transalpine Gaul. The Gauls amplified and embellished the story as the facts seemed to warrant, spreading rumours that Caesar was detained by the disturbances in the capital, and that, whilst these fierce conflicts were raging, he could not rejoin his army. The opportunity stimulated the Gauls. They were already smarting under their subjection to the Roman people, and they now began, unreservedly and boldly, to form projects for war. The leading men of Gaul mutually arranged meetings in secluded woodland spots. They spoke bitterly of the death of Acco, telling their hearers that the same fate might befall them, and, deploring the fortune that oppressed the whole country, they made promises and offered rewards of every kind to induce volunteers to strike the first blow and risk their lives to restore the liberty of Gaul. The first step was to contrive a plan for cutting off Caesar from his army before their secret designs could get abroad. This could easily be done, for the legions would not venture to leave their quarters in the general's absence, and the general would not be able to get to the legions without an escort. Finally, it was better to die in battle than to fail in recovering their old military renown and the freedom which was their heritage from their forefathers. Chapter 2 at the close of the debate, the Carnutes declared that they would shrink from no peril for the common weal, and promised to strike the first blow, and as, in the circumstances, it was impossible to give mutual security by exchanging hostages, for fear the design should get abroad, they demanded that the Confederates should make a sheaf of their military standards, an act which, according to Gallic custom, involves a most awful right, and bind themselves by solemn oath as a pledge that, after they had begun the war, the others should not leave them in the lurch. The Carnutes were loudly cheered. All who were present took the oath. A date was fixed for the enterprise, and then the assembly dispersed. Chapter 3 When the appointed day came round, and the signal was given, the Carnutes, led by two desperados named Cotuatus and Conconeto Dumnus, swooped down upon Cenabrum killed the Roman citizens who had settled in the place for trade, amongst others Gaius Fufius Cita, a Roman knight of good position, whom Caesar had placed in charge of the commissariat, and plundered their stores. The news spread swiftly to all the tribes of Gaul, for whenever an event of signal importance occurs, the people make it known by loud cries over the countryside, and others in turn take up the cry and pass it on to their neighbours. So it happened on this occasion. The events which had occurred in Cenabrum at sunrise were heard of in the country of the Arverni before the close of the first watch, the distance being about 160 miles. 
Chapter 4. In this country dwelt Vercingetorix, son of Celtillus, a young Arvernian of commanding influence, whose father had held the foremost position in all Gaul, and had been put to death by his tribe for trying to make himself king. Following the lead of the conspirators, he called his retainers together and easily inflamed their passions. On learning his design, men flew to arms. Gobernitio, his father's brother, and the other chiefs, who thought that this was no occasion for tempting fortune, frowned upon his enterprise and expelled him from Gergovia. Still he did not abandon his purpose, but raised a posse of needy and desperate men in the rural districts. Master of this force, he won over every tribesman whom he approached, and urged them to take up arms in the cause of national freedom, and raising a numerous host, he drove his opponents, by whom he had himself just before been banished, to leave the country. His adherents saluted him as king. He sent out envoys in every direction, adjuring the confederates to remain true. He quickly secured the adhesion of the Senones, Parisii, Pictones, Cadurci, Turoni, Aulerci, Lemovices, Andi, and all the other maritime tribes, and the chief command was conferred upon him unanimously. Armed with this power, he ordered all these tribes to give hostages and bring him speedily a definite quota of troops. He fixed a date by which each tribe was to turn out a specified quantity of arms from its own workshops, and devoted special attention to his cavalry. With the utmost diligence, he combined the utmost severity in the exercise of his command, coercing waverers by heavy penalties. Thus he punished serious misdemeanours by death at the stake with all kinds of tortures, whilst he sent home minor offenders with their ears lopped off, or one eye gouged out, that they might serve as a warning to the rest, and that the severity of their punishment might make others quail. Chapter 5 By these stern measures he speedily raised an army, and sent a Cadurcan named Lucterius, a man of the greatest daring, with a detachment into the country of the Ruteni, while he marched in person for the country of the Bituriges. On his approach the Bituriges sent envoys to the Edui, whose overlordship they acknowledged, asking for aid to enable them to offer a better resistance to the enemy's force. The Edui, acting on the advice of the generals whom Caesar had left with the army, sent a force of cavalry and infantry to their assistance. When they reached the Loire, the boundary between the Bituriges and the Edui, they lingered there a few days, and then turned back without venturing to cross the river. They told the generals that they had returned from fear of treachery on the part of the Bituriges, as they had found out that it was their intention, if they crossed the river, to hem them in on one side, while the Arverni hemmed them in on the other. Whether they acted for the reason which they stated to the generals, or from motives of treachery, we have no certain knowledge, and therefore do not think it right to make any positive statement. On their departure, the Bituriges immediately joined the Arverni. Chapter 6 By the time that news of these events reached Caesar in Italy, he was aware that, through the energy of Gnaeus Pompeius, the situation in the capital had improved, and accordingly started for Transalpine Gaul. On his arrival he found it very difficult to devise a plan for getting to his army. He realised that if he summoned the legions to the province they would fight a battle on the march without his being present. If, on the other hand, 
he pushed on alone to join the army, he saw that he could not prudently trust his safety, at such a crisis, even to the tribes which were apparently peaceable. Chapter 7 Meanwhile the Caderkan, Lucterius, who had been sent into the country of the Ruteni, induced that tribe to join the Arverni. Advancing into the territories of the Nitioborges and Gabali, he took hostages from both, and, collecting a large force, attempted to make a raid into the province in the direction of Narbo. On receiving news of this, Caesar deemed it imperative, before doing anything else, to march for Narbo. Arriving there, he encouraged the faint-hearted, posted detachments amongst the provincial Ruteni, the Volci Aracomici, the Tolosates, and in the districts around Narbo which were in proximity to the enemy, and ordered a part of the provincial troops and a fresh draft which he had brought from Italy to concentrate in the country of the Helvii, which is conterminous with that of the Arveni. Chapter 8 As a result of these measures, Lucterius was checked and in fact forced to retire, for he thought it hazardous to venture within the chain of posts, and accordingly Caesar started for the country of the Helvii. It was the most rigorous season of the year, and the Cavenas, which separate the Arverni from the Helvii, was covered by snow of extraordinary depth, which made marching difficult. But the snow, which was six feet deep, was shoveled aside, and, the roads being thus cleared by prodigious exertion on the part of the men, he made his way to the country of the Arverni. They were taken completely by surprise, for they had always supposed that the Cavenes protected them like a wall, and that that time of year the tracks had never been practicable, even for solitary travellers. Caesar ordered his cavalry to scour the country far and wide, and do their utmost to strike terror into the enemy. The news travelled swiftly by rumour and dispatches to Vercingetorix, and the Arverni, in great alarm, all thronged round him, and besought him to have some consideration for them, and not let them be pillaged by the enemy, for he must see that the whole brunt of the war had been shifted on to them. Yielding to their entreaties, he moved from the country of the Vitoriges towards that of the Arverni. Chapter 9 Caesar had anticipated that this would happen with Vercingetorix. Therefore, after remaining a couple of days in the district, he left the army on the pretext of having to concentrate the new draft and the cavalry and placed the younger Brutus in command of the troops, charging him to make the cavalry scar the country in all directions, far and wide, and announcing that he would do his best not to stay away from camp more than three days. Having settled these matters, he made his way as fast as he could possibly travel to Vienna, before his troops expected him, picked up his cavalry there, which he had sent on a considerable time before, in good condition, and pushed on through the country of the Aedui, marching night and day, so that in case they had any intention of molesting him, he might be too quick for them, till he reached the country of the Lingones, where two legions were wintering. On his arrival he sent word to the remaining legions, and concentrated them all before news of his arrival could reach the Arverni. Vercingetorix, on hearing what he had done, led his army back into the country of the Bituriges, and moving thence, proceeded to besiege Gorgobina, a stronghold of the Boii, whom Caesar had established there after their defeat in the battle with the Helvetii, and had placed independence on the Aedui. Chapter 10 Caesar was greatly embarrassed by this move, 
if he kept his legions concentrated for the rest of the winter, and the tributaries of the Aedui were overpowered, the whole of Gaul, seeing that he could not be relied upon to protect his friends, might simultaneously fall away. If, on the other hand, he prematurely withdrew the army from its quarters, he might be pressed for supplies owing to the difficulties of transport. Still, it seemed better to face every difficulty than to alienate all who were on his side by submitting to an indignity like this. Accordingly, he charged the Aedui to forward supplies, and sent on messengers to let the Boyi know that he was coming, and to urge them to remain faithful, and sustain the enemy's attack with fortitude. Then, leaving two legions and the heavy baggage of the whole army at Agadincum, he set out to join the Boyi. Chapter 11 Next day he reached the Velonodunum, a stronghold of the Senones. In order to avoid leaving an enemy in his rear and so expedite supply, he proceeded to besiege the town, and in a couple of days surrounded it with a contravallation. On the third day envoys were sent out to propose surrender. Caesar ordered the garrison to pile arms, bring out their horses, and give six hundred hostages. He left Gaius Trebonius to give effect to these orders, and being anxious to finish his march as soon as possible, pushed on for Cenabum in the country of the Carnutes. Believing that the siege of Velonodunum, news of which had only just reached them, would be protracted, they were beginning to collect troops to send to the protection of Cenabum. Caesar reached the town in a couple of days. He encamped before it, but as it was late in the day and he was prevented from beginning the siege, he postponed it till the morrow, ordering the troops to make all needful preparations, and... As there was a bridge over the Loire in contact with the town, and he feared that the garrison might escape in the night, he directed two legions to remain under arms. Shortly before midnight the townspeople moved silently out of Kennebum and began to cross the river. The movement was reported to Caesar by his patrols, whereupon he fired the gates, sent in the legions which he had ordered to remain in readiness, and took possession of the town. Very few of the enemy escaped capture, for the narrowness of the bridge and streets prevented the throng from getting away. Caesar plundered and burned the town, gave the booty to the soldiers, threw his army across the Loire, and made his way into the country of the Beturiges. 12. When Vercingetorix learned that Caesar was approaching, he abandoned the siege and marched to encounter him. Caesar had prepared to besiege a stronghold of the Bituriges, called Noviodunum, situated upon his line of march. Envoys came from the town to beg him to pardon them and to spare their lives, and, in order to finish the campaign as rapidly as he had begun it, he ordered the garrison to pile their arms, bring out their horses, and give hostages. Some of the hostages had been delivered up, and the other arrangements were in progress the centurions and a few soldiers having been sent into the town to collect the arms and cattle, when the enemy's cavalry, which had gone on in advance of Vercingetorix's column, were seen in the distance. The moment the townspeople caught sight of them, they realized that there was a chance of relief, and with a yell they seized their arms, shut the gates, and manned the walls. The centurions in the town, understanding from the behavior of the Gauls that they meant mischief, drew their swords, took possession of the gates, and withdrew all their men in safety. Chapter 13 
Caesar ordered his cavalry out of camp, and forced on an engagement. Presently, his men being in difficulties, he sent about four hundred German horse, whom he had regularly entertained from the first, to the rescue. The Gauls, unable to sustain their charge, were put to flight, and fell back with heavy loss upon the main body. On their defeat, the townsmen again took alarm, and seizing the individuals, whom they believed to have been instrumental in stirring up the rabble, took them to Caesar and surrendered. This affair disposed of, Caesar marched for Albericum, the largest and strongest town in the country of the Bitteriges, which is situated in a very fertile tract, for he was confident that by recovery of this stronghold he would re-establish his authority over the tribe. End of chapter 13